Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Mark 14. We didn't quite get through it last week, but dang it, we gave it a good scout's effort. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 40. Actually, let me go back to 41 because I think it starts this section of the chapter. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man's being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus has left the disciples to go win a spiritual battle in prayer in Gethsemane, which means pressed oil. He's been pressed. He's been tested. And we should remember that because there were three occasions where Jesus invited the disciples to watch and pray. And there were three occasions where they failed to watch and pray. Specifically, uh, Peter is falling asleep at the wheel. It's a good thing he's at the wheel because we're going to see, well, well, actually Mark doesn't record this story, but he goes to chop the soldier's ear off. And if he, if he was had a good night's sleep, and he was wide awake. He probably would have hit for the kill. But so it's lucky, you know, he kind of had the morning fog when he was swinging that thing. Uh, but uh, verse 43 is where we're actually picking up today. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him and lead him away safely. So it says a great multitude. They just got done with that final supper. It might be that that final supper, some people believe, was at, at John Mark's house or um, Mary and Lazarus's house, and, and it, it was in Bethany. Um, but it could be that at that period of time, like he started picking up some people. So there's a great multitude that comes out of the city. They would have seen this multitude coming down the hill, into the valley, and back up the hill. So while Jesus is praying, there's probably a good 30 to 40 minutes where he could see this crowd coming their way. And then you kind of weave your way up the hill, and that's when he wakes the, the disciples up. We know that one of the places where they met on a regular basis in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, verse 12, was John Mark's house. He's a kid about 11 years old right now. And this is, so it's likely that when they had the dinner, the last supper, and then they left to go off to the garden, that there was more than just the disciples that followed Jesus. And so we're going to see that in a second, especially a little naked boy um, running around. And, and, there's, and, and a lot of people believe that that was John Mark and that this is where he kind of puts his signature in his gospel. Um, but right now it's Judas who says, whomever I kiss. The word kiss there, Greeks have like love. They have like five different words for love. For kiss, they have multiple words for kiss. And there's the kiss, which is the peck on the cheek, the greeting kiss. This isn't that word. This is the passionate kiss. <laughs> so it's a little creepy. Right? He's, it's not just like, you know, when you see in the Middle East, you kind of do a smooch, smooch. There, Hollywood, one of the two places, you greet someone and you kind of smooch them on each cheek. This was a full on passionate, like, I love you kiss. So, not a sexual one, but definitely an engaged, passionate, you won't miss the signal. This is the guy I'm going to kiss, kiss. You know, so just that longer hug, that endearing family hug. The, the way that the word for kiss that's chosen there was that Judas was family. He was a brother. 
It's like when people come to church and we say, hey, brother, how you doing? And there's more. It's not just a greeting with acquaintances. There's a hug there that means something. Again, not necessarily sexual, but absolutely familial. And there's just that that passion that goes with it that's there. Um, Why did Judas have to kiss Jesus for Jesus to be identified? It's the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They just had two days in the temple courtyard. They They should know what the guy looks like, shouldn't they? This is Jesus. He's been very public figure. And even in the last couple of days, this is the same groups of people in verse 43 that now need him to be identified. Part of that, it's early morning. Maybe the lighting isn't good. But part of this is this, Isaiah 53, 2. The Messiah has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing about this guy where people would say he's handsome which is where every film portrayal of Jesus is just wrong. He's not that good looking. He doesn't stand ahead above all his disciples. There's nothing about him that makes him stand out. Typically plain and average looking to the point where you need him pointed out two days after he was teaching in the courtyards and you questioned him. So this is part of them not mistaking it. They didn't have like a photo, you know, that like the FBI has like a wanted poster. They don't have that. So they need people to identify so they get the right person. They need a witness. So they lead him away safely, right? Isn't that an interesting word? Um, Whoever I kiss, he's the one, sees him and lead him away safely. I'm going to argue, and there's lots of takes on Judas, but this is my take. I don't think Judas knew the extent of evil. I think he wanted Jesus to have a confrontation so he could step up as Messiah and finally start what Judas thought the ministry should be. And I've met enough people that call themselves Christians that have an idea what they think the ministry should be, and that becomes something that's actually divisive and not helpful. And so I think Judas was actually trying to force a confrontation here so Jesus would step up and take the authority that he's already been taking the last few days. I think he was trying to speed up the process. And one clue to that is where it says here in verse 44 that he wanted them to seize him and lead him away safely. He's not intending harm to Jesus at this point. He's he's not meaning anything bad. He's just, he's either sick and tired of Jesus not stepping up as Messiah, or he's thinking Jesus has gone a step too far with this I'm God stuff. And so he wants to kind of end that. Either way, it's Judas's will that's more important than Jesus's will. And he hasn't done that. Judas is the only one of the disciples in the gospel. There's no place in the Bible where Jesus, where Judas calls Jesus Lord. Peter calls him Lord. John calls him Lord. John calls him a lot of really great names. Judas never calls him Lord. Calls him rabbi, teacher. But at some point, God's got to just be more than your teacher. He's got to be your Lord. And when it comes, the difference between a teacher and a Lord is a teacher you'll take with a grain of salt. Well, I like what they said about this. I don't like what they said about that. But Lords, you just obey. And you just, you say, not my will, but yours, O Lord, because I don't know any better. And I think Judas is here. Again, there's a clue here that his intention isn't for Christ to go to harm. It's, and, and it would be hard to imagine it because the only people that had the authority to kill were the Romans. Right? The Sanhedrin, could do, they could recommend a killing, but the Romans had to approve it. If it was religious stuff, they couldn't kill a Roman citizen. I mean, there's all sorts of rules around that. The ultimate authority lied with the Romans. And Judas turned him over to the priests, probably for disciplinary action or for Jesus to take charge. So there's an emphatic kiss. He uses the phrase, Rabbi, Rabbi. That had to hurt. This is why we call it a Judas's kiss. 
that kind of betrayal, it's the worst. Somebody who's fake like they're your friend in their body, but in their heart, there's a conflict there. There's a difference there. There isn't a unity of spirit. There's a, a, a budding heads of spirit. So rabbi is an affectionate term for teacher. Um, it is a choice that you call someone a rabbi. Verse 46, then they laid their hands on him and took him. The laid their hands on, don't, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a forceful taking or laying on of hands. That's not like we're praying for somebody laying on of hands. That's a, we're going to grab you and throw you in a jail cell laying on of hands. It was rough. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The other gospels are happy to tell us this is Peter. <laughs> in, the, in the gospel likely inspired by Peter's teachings, that's left out who it was. And I, and I think there's a reason for that. It says one of those, um, and with all their skill and ability, and I think this is part of when Christians take up the sword, we stink at it. We're, we, we're not very good at taking up the sword. When we take up conflict and violence, the best that Peter can offer is chopping off an ear. He just makes it so other people are deaf. And I think there's great imagery here. If all you got to do is fight with people, you're just cutting off the ability for people to hear Jesus. And the other gospels tell about how Jesus stops everything. There's power in this word he gives, picks up the ear, smacks it back on with some Holy Spirit glue, and the thing's good to go, and he fixes it. So once again, Jesus has to fix the problems that we Christians create. And he does it with great mercy. The other piece here is, I don't think Jesus wants Peter to be tried for a crime right now. So if the ear's been securely fastened, there's no crime. No body, no crime. And so right now it's Jesus's time. It's not Peter's time. So I think there's some, some things there where Jesus had to make sure it goes that way. Notice in the Gospel of Mark, it just says that this happens. Um, and, and it kind of skips that entire story, I think, because Peter's trying to do something more about his own heart. And his own heart was to cut off the ear. His heart was not to heal it. And so the other disciples mercifully share that part of the story. But Mark's painting a picture of Peter here that Peter doesn't look very good. And, and, it, and it's definitely not one that flatters. But then that's the gospel story that he gets to tell. That's his witness. I was this and now I'm this. And so when you see that and you look at how that's been done, Mark leaves his name out. But he's, he's taking this from sermons Peter's given over and over and over again where he tells his story. Here's, even though I was trained by Jesus for three years, this is the kind of guy I was. So... Mark's highlighting namely two followers here. The one that cuts off the ear, we know that's Peter. And then there's going to be a second one in verse 51 that we're going to get to. But there's kind of this kind of, this idea that the disciples all failed. They all failed to pray. They all at the Lord's Supper said, we won't deny you. They all screwed it up. I love these things because I screw it up. And so when I hear these things, it's not just to pick on Peter and what a failure he was, but to look at my own life and the times where I've done things wrong. So you got Judas and you got Peter and you got this little naked boy and you just got these people that are all believers doing very different things and they're all failing Jesus in different ways. No one was there for Jesus when it all went down. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have I come out to you against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching. You didn't 
sees me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. They must be fulfilled. I love this. Jesus' point is valid. Like, why are you coming out and getting me in a garden in the cracking hours of the morning? Sun hasn't even come up yet. Am I some sneaky person that you had to try to come and find me? Like, I, I would have been in the temple teaching again. Uh, but this is out of their control, too. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Um, so he's, I think one thing that Jesus is doing when he says this is he's helping, he's, he's going after their hearts too. Why the motive? Why are you being so cruel to someone who has never, never done anything to you? And so I, I actually think the Holy God is trying to give this mob an opportunity to change. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Where's the scripture that's being fulfilled here? We don't get a reference, um, but the mention of a robber is that you're coming out against a robber. You're treating somebody who's not guilty as though someone who is. And you look at Isaiah 53. Frankly, this chapter in Isaiah 53 goes side by side. Find Isaiah 53 and just keep your thumb in there because we're going to flip there like three, four times today. Um, Isaiah 53, you want to go left in your Bible. And it's a fairly big book, so if you fan your pages, you should be able to find it pretty, pretty quick. Isaiah 53 is kind of the a core messianic one where it's pretty hard to read it. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that, wow, they predicted all this stuff hundreds of years before Jesus. And for some folks, that's a faith-building kind of thing, like uh, that God called the shots, right? If you play pool, good pool players call their shots, no accidental scores. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They likely handed him, handled him roughly with the laying on of hands, the bruising him, so that fulfillment of, of, of scriptures could be a piece of that. Psalm 55 also speaks of a betrayal or a hurtful and personal betrayal that's going to happen to the Messiah. So this is the writings of David. He knew what betrayal looked like. Isaiah 55, and again, keep your thumb in Isaiah 53. Psalm 55, destruction is in its midst, oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, though I could bear it. No, it's one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you. It was a man that was my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God to, in the throng. To be taken by deceit by a friend is probably the worst kind of betrayal that can happen. So this is the stuff that's stacking up on Jesus. He's going to get the worst of everything over the next few hours. The worst of anything this world can dish out on a human bag of flesh, Jesus is going to get it. And part of what it starts with is his friends failing to pray for him. But then it keeps going. His friends actually turning on him. And so what's about to happen to Jesus is you can say that spiritually he took the sins of the world on his shoulders, but there's a good argument to say that he physically took more than anybody's ever taken to. And there's been some evil folks that have tried to surpass it. Uh, but the, the, the sequence of events here starts as spiritual and emotional, not just the physical problems that he had. And I'm not saying that just so we can be like, oh, poor Jesus. I actually say that because I'm like, oh, glory to God what a, that Jesus took what I deserved. And so each of those blows that he takes, each of those accusations that aren't fair, each of those crimes he's punished for that he didn't deserve, a lot of those are ones that I deserve. I deserve to be pulled away for that. If you look at the heart and what I am in the flesh, I'm, these are the paths that I'm on. This is where I would have ended up. So then 
They all forsook him and fled. Again, the emphasis in, in Mark isn't to point out Peter or particular disciples. There's really this pattern of like, they all forsook him and they all fled. Isaiah 52, 3. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus said that would happen. Mark 14, 27, if you go back in the chapter, all of you will be made to stumble because of me. So he tells the prophecy it's fulfilled within a day. That's why we know that Mark 13 is valid prophecy because Jesus is a prophet and he was able to predict things and they actually happened. So it emphasizes the degree to which they all ran and frankly, they ran for their lives. Fear does that. If somebody smacks you in the face, I don't know whose childhoods were what. I grew up in a small town. We hit each other for fun just to see what it would feel like, right? You get smacked in the face. Everything in your body reacts to that. Everything in your body gets ready for the blow. What hurts is when you get blindsided, when somebody smacks you and you don't see it coming. That's when quarterbacks get injured. It's, they can have a 300-pound guy tackle them, but when they see it coming, your body has natural reactions to that. But to get blindsided by a friend, there's nothing that preps you for that, nothing that sets you up emotionally or spiritually for that situation. It just hurts. It's a, it's a wound. It's a spiritual kind of crucifixion. They didn't pray with Jesus. They didn't give up their will for the Lord God. They skipped all that, and now they don't have any perspective in this situation. They can't handle fear because they didn't deal with their fear back in the prayer moment. Heroes in the faith, they've gotten ready for that moment well before it happened. Good athletes do the same thing. They're, they're planning for moments in the events way before they're in the event. They're practicing for them. They're trying to even recreate them. And so they can practice those moments, those moves. Spiritually, we're the same way. We study the word of God because we're practicing our moves spiritually. And, and that lack of prayer, they all forsake him. They all forsook him last week. They all forsake him in verse 50. It's absolutely connected. If you fail to pray, you fail to play. And spiritually, I want to be in the game. I don't want to be a bench warmer. So prayer is a key part of that. Verse 51, now a certain young man followed him. When you see that in this era of writing, this is the author saying, hey, there was this guy here. So thus far, Mark is reporting everything he's heard Peter talk about in his teachings. But this verse, verse 51, is maybe that moment where, now this is where Mark comes into the story. And it may be that he started following him from the Last Supper and that's why he's in his bathrobes as they kind of took off in the middle of the night. And this kid's like, I'm following. Um, where his parents are, I don't know. Bad babysitting going on here. But a certain young man followed him. Young man is, you know, 11, 10 years old, somewhere in there. Young man means he hasn't gone through his bar mitzvah. So he's, he's younger than 13. Um, but old enough to leave the house in a sheet without his parents knowing that he's gone. He has a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man laid hold of him. So this is their rough handling all of the people that were with Jesus, right? And they left the linen cloth, and he fled naked. This is the oddest little verse I, I think I can imagine in the Gospels. Like, this is just a weird thing. So they grabbed his clothes, and he was trying to get away. And in order to get away, he's like, forget about it. He's, if you're a little kid, you know you're about to get beat up. And, they, and you got a, your clothes got to rip and stay behind you, you're going to take off buck naked. And that's what this kid did. And so there's an idea in verse 50, they all forsook him and fled. And then here's an example. There's also a little man there, little man there that, that this is what happened to me when this happened. And so now Mark's maybe recalling some things that are personal experience where he's the first person witness to these next scenes. And, the, and lo and behold, Mark gets a little more detailed here at the end of the book. 
We get a little more vivid character and personality in this. And part of that is Mark's drawing not just on Peter's sermons, but his own experience. That tells us how to witness too. Part of when we share the gospel with people is to interject where we came into the story. This is what Jesus did for me. And I, honestly, I think that the world is pretty good about that when they talk about your own experience and being able to speak from it. We as Christians can learn from that too. You can't argue with my experience, but I'm going to tell you my experience because we're engaged. That's who I am. It oozes out of me. So you got possibly John Mark being the one that's running here. It doesn't say that. The author doesn't say it specifically, but in context, it, it really is how authors would put signatures on these kinds of books. Um, so um, literary speaking, I'll just give you an example. Matthew 9, 9 says, and Jesus is walking around and he saw a man named Matthew. And he's the writer of the book, but he refers to himself as a character in his book. So it's, it's the same thing Matthew does. Matthew puts his name in there, um, but it's the same kind of thing is that he doesn't say, and then Jesus saw me in my tax collector's booth. That would be arrogant in Jewish tradition. So you humbly make yourself into a character in the story. And I think for John Mark, he doesn't mention Peter's name earlier. And in verse 51, he doesn't mention his own name either. It's that it's his style of writing. There's a humility there. And frankly, it doesn't matter who it is. One of the guys is swinging a sword. One of the guys is running off without his clothes. Like the point being the disciples absolutely dissolved. In the moment of trial, they couldn't stand. And this is what teaches them. We beat ourselves up when we fail in the faith. Don't beat yourself up. Learn your lesson. Get some humility and start watching and praying because God told us to do that. So I, I would say for all these people that dissolved and ran, when the church forms after the resurrection, they are like steel. They're not going to dissolve until the day they die. So all of this is forming the metal of these people. All these failures matter because they're, cre they're creating the disciples of the early church, the apostles, these rocks in the middle of a stormy world. I like that. So the linen cloth there is a, a, a sindon, which is the Roman version of a toga. In other words, this little boy wasn't dressing like a Jew. There was some influence of, of the culture that was coming into that family and into that home. Just a side note. Um, we've all gone like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6. Again, check this chapter out while I'm reading today. All we have gone like sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. And notice that him there has a capital H. All of this running means the only person to take this punishment is God himself. And that's the only person that could take the punishment. So Jesus faces this trial. So we should note that there's three trials. People get confused about this when they go through the four Gospels. Because how come in this trial he's standing before Annas, or, Annas, or I don't know, however you pronounce his name. <laughs> Oops. And then in this one he's in front of Caiaphas. And in this one, it's because there's three trials. The first trial that we saw in Matthew was Annas. A-N-N-A-S, just saying. Um, that's the preliminary trial. It's recorded in John 18 through 23, too, in detail. That's the illegal trial. They should never meet for a trial in, before the sun's come up. So it's illegal. If the cock crows after the trial, as we see with Peter, that's important. The Jews were breaking the law. And we made that point in Matthew. Second trials with the Sanhedrin happens right after the cock crows. 
and that's the official trial, but they go there for a verdict, and then the, all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes is the judgment trial, the sentencing trial, which is the one we have now. And Mark just goes right to sentencing, because Mark is just nuts and bolts. Um, Mark was also written early, and Luke and John both had a chance to go into the court records and pull those records and put them into their Gospels. So they got a little bit fuller story there. So it's not just that Mark was quick. It's that Mark's taking an oral tradition. So the Roman part also, the Roman trial also had Pilate, and then he went to Herod, and then he goes back to Pilate. In other words, he had three Jewish trials, complete, three Roman trials, complete, put them together, human. <laughs> There's six trials that Jesus goes through, which is the humanity's judgment of Jesus. Those of you that like the numbers, just like to point them out for you. Then 53, verse 53, and they led Jesus astray to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Uh, so this is the final trial. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. You could be an observer at these things. And he sat with the servants and warned himself there. The word servants that's there is the same word that was used for the people that came out to grab them. So it's the same temple guard that actually handled Jesus and brought him in. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but he found none. And for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. If you're going to lie about somebody, get your story straightened out, right? Like work it out. But here's the thing. Judas comes in in the middle of the night and says, I know where he is. And they don't miss him. They were glad to hear it. They didn't miss a beat. They ran out to get him in. They didn't have time to coordinate their stories. And so what came out in the courts wasn't carefully orchestrated lies. It was really ad hoc attacks that came against him. Peter follows him at a distance. So Peter's made a few mistakes. One is he didn't pray. He didn't watch. He didn't wake up. And then he fails by getting violent instead of actually um, following Jesus' guidance. But now he's following Jesus at a distance. And that's one of his failings. He's not with them. And we do this, when we follow Jesus at a distance or keep him at arm's length, we never get the blessings of the kingdom. You know, you maybe get the blessings of some great food on a Sunday afternoon, but you're not getting the, the spiritual blessings that people want. Follow him close or, you know, don't bother. So this is a show trial. They hate him. This is the worst kind of monkey kind of trial that's going on. What's the name of those trials? Are, is it monkey trials? Is it... What kangaroo? I knew it was an animal. I honestly spent 15 minutes trying to find out what the name of a like a bad court was, and it's kangaroo court. Thank you guys. I should have just called people. <laughs> so Peter's in contrast to Jesus in this chapter. He's also in contrast to Judas in this chapter. Jesus prayed. Peter slept. Jesus watched. Peter slept. Jesus held his peace. Peter strikes out. Jesus stands. Peter's at a distance. Jesus is bruised. Peter's warming himself by the fire with the enemy. He's comfortable. Jesus is winning his spiritual battles. Peter is losing his spiritual battles. It's just the way Mark sets that up is just Jesus is everything and I sucked all the time. <laughs> like I did everything wrong. But the point of that when he's preaching is, but now I'm doing it right. The point of his preaching and telling this kind of story, this testimonial, it isn't to wallow in your badness. The point of this is coming in a couple chapters, but now I'm changed and I'm not what I was before. 
I love when I've known you've got people in the fellowship and you've been around for like a year or so. And, and I just think in my head, I'm like, and you're not the same person that I met a year ago. You're changing. And I love that. And I hope you guys think the same thing about me. Dickers is not the same guy he was a year ago. And if you're not closer to Jesus today than you were at some past point in your life, you're backslidden. Get back with Jesus. Don't follow at a distance. And here's the thing. Jesus and God, they're eternity. You can get closer and closer to God through your entire life and still not even get a fraction of the blessings God's ready to give you for the rest of eternity. So it's like, well, how close can you get to God? And it's like, as humans, like, how close do you want? Like, we can't even imagine how much better it gets. I thought I was rocking it with God 10 years ago, and I knew nothing. I was an idiot, immature believer compared to where I'm at now. And I pray that in 20 years I say the same thing about who I am today. I knew nothing back. Like, it's so much better when you get there. They found nothing wrong with Jesus. That's important. The point here is this is a legal situation. Uh, their testimonies didn't agree. They simply couldn't convict him. But then some rose up and bore false witness against him. We heard him say, this is, it, it, it like hurts to read this. If you've met these, it's like, ah, 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 we got you, we got you. They've been waiting to get him and they still don't have anything. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple with, made with hands and within three days I'll build another made out without hands. First of all, they're misquoting him. And that's the aha, aha people. This is what they do. They're misquoting him completely. They're taking him out of context. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about the spiritual body of Christ, the body, the family of God. He actually said, John 2, 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And he was talking about himself because they were talking about destroying him. So they don't quote him accurately, and in order to condemn him, they have to twist his words. Non-believers love to do this with the Bible. Get ready for it. Don't be stunned by it, and don't try to argue with them about it. If that's their heart, they got other spiritual work to do. You're not going to change their mind with an argument. Roman law, the desecration of any home and holy place is punishable by death. So when they accuse him of the threat to desecrate a holy place, Romans didn't care if it was their holy place. It was against the law and it was punishable by death. So Romans, their thing was you let people practice their religions as long as they pay their taxes. So when they make this accusation, this is a kill shot. They're accusing him of something that has a capital crime attached to it. So, but not only, not even did the then, uh, verse 59, but not even then did their testimony agree. <laughs> so, yeah. They just can't get it straight. The point is they have a bad case against Jesus and he's actually pretty dang innocent. That's the point. Uh, and all four Gospels agree on that count. Not one of the Gospels nor the Jewish records had an actual accusation that, that stuck or had any evidence behind it. Because he wasn't a bad guy. Uh, verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it, what is, what is it these men testify against you? And he kept silent and answered nothing. First of all, the judge sits down in a Jewish court. So when he stands up, he just left the judgment seat. And so he's breaking the rules. Um, it's an action of an irritated human being that's absolutely inflamed with a godly person. Now, you can get worried about this, but as a believer, I'd encourage you to just have a good spirit about it. These people exist and they get really angry, and I hope you never run into one. But if you do, don't be shocked by it. And Jesus wasn't. He holds his tongue. You don't need to respond to people like that. 
God is watching and God will respond to people like that. Good luck with everything thereafter in that situation. So instead of arguing or losing it or getting yourself worked up, to whatever degree possible, live as peacefully with that person as you can, even in their frustration. But this is a guy who's supposed to be the high priest, and he stands up in the midst of it, and he asks him this direct question. Frankly, this is the first real question they ask him in the entire proceedings. It's the only question that he's about to ask him. And here it is. Again, the high priest asked him, saying him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? That sneaks out of his mouth. And then Jesus is like, now I'm ready to talk because everything else is nonsense. This is the one that matters. The fact that he held his tongue, go back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse seven. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When it came out of the high priest's mouth that he didn't open the mouth, that high priest darn well knew Isaiah 53. But he's so angry and mad, he says the thing that prophecy says will happen. It comes out of the enemy's mouth, but it's true. He stays quiet. There's no defense against people willing to lie against you. <laughs> you can't defend against lies. That's why they're so evil. It's, like, it's why they're one of the Ten Commandments. Is because when people lie, you can't defend against a lie. It's you're just that whatever court's going to happen, you either have a just court or you don't. So I think it's great because the other thing the enemy does here, standing up in anger and getting all mad, is everything then, he asks that question, he blares it out with all that emotion, that rage, little spittle coming off his mouth, big red in the face, sky, you know, and he, it all comes out, and now everything goes to Jesus. All the focus is, how is he going to answer that? And everybody, all eyes are on Jesus. And it's the enemy that does that. The enemy eats themselves. They lose all credibility. He stood up. He shouldn't, and he's going to tear his robes in a second. He loses all credibility, but the one on trial gets all the respect and all the glory and all the credibility. This is the nature of evil and good. I, and there's so much here. Like, honestly, we could spend another whole sermon on this dynamic. Um, this is where we get the idea of silence in the face of lies. We have the right to remain silent. And the goal of putting that into, like, our... Um, our legal system was based securely in this understanding from the scriptures is that you can have kangaroo trials all over the world, but here in our country, you have a right to not talk and anything you can say can and will be used against you in a court of law. So yes, you as a human being have a right to not speak. And that comes right from this passage and that, you know what, this would have got this, Jesus didn't speak. And we're going to just admit that people have a right to do that. So then the priest asks the only question that matters, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And so we have a confrontation here between the fake placeholder priest and the real high priest of God Almighty. And you've got this, here we are, and we've gone through the whole book of Mark and it's been Judaism versus Jesus. And now we're at the two high priests facing off and the two words that come out of his mouth first, verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And it's like, boom. Like, this is the climax of the movie, you guys. This is the moment. I can hear like a resonant bass drum behind that. You know, or you wonder if it had a reverb effect, like God just added a little reverb there for effect. I am, I am, I am. It would be kind of cool. But here's the best part. I love the I am because it's the truth. 
right? Pretty quick showdown. Are you the Christ? I am. Thank you. It's all over. But I, I also, I, I like that Jesus is fighting here too. He points out that who the judge is now, right? Because the judge just got off his chair. The earthly high priest judge, steward, placeholder, the one supposed to take care of the vineyard, he just left his seat. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. <laughs> oh, and I'm the judge. You think you're judging Jesus? Wrong. Jesus is judging you. Humans do this all the time. They think they can judge the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God. God's wrong about this. What an arrogant little ant you are, right? If there's a God, do you think he's going to bicker with you about his law? You're crazy people. You're nuts. I am's a really simple answer, and, and that comes right out of Exodus 3.14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. There's the Popeye line. I am who I am. That's so when, G, when Moses is begging him for a name, that's the name God gives him. And he says, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, in other words, the Jews know this, I am has sent you. So when he says, are you the Christ, the Son of God, and he goes, I am, like, oh, that's way too far for a human like the jewish people would this would yeah and the result is what we would expect like because he's just he's using a phrase that every jewish person in that entire assembly would have known to shoot out i am as your first sentence wow and i'll be at the right hand of power and you will see the sun like he's just adding three four different messianic passages here mixing them all together like he wrote the book himself right Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, interesting referencing right there, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's right there in Psalm 11. Daniel 7, 13, I was watching the night visions and behold, one like the son of man was coming on the clouds of heaven. Everywhere in the Old Testament, we get these descriptions of Messiah. The most notable ones that name him, Jesus puts them together in a giant mashup and sets it up on Spotify. Like this is like putting it all together. And he's got this multiple unequivocated claim to Messiah. And we, he's been dancing through the whole book of Mark. And now it's like boom, boom, boom. And it's coming out like this massive statement and really it's the only thing that Jesus recorded on trial in, in the book of Mark um, but the entire switching of phrases if we go back to Daniel seven fourteen, that clouds of heaven reference right we'd know that those elder scribes would have memorized these verses this is the next verse after that I, you know I like to do this he says clouds of heaven but what they're thinking might be the next verse Daniel seven fourteen. then to him the Messiah it was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom the one which will not be destroyed are are you the Christ? Yes, and I'm your judge. Okay, carpenter from Nazareth, let's see how that goes for you over the next 24 hours. Let's see how much of a judge you really, that's what pride does, right? You see this humble looking guy who says they're the Christ? Uh-uh, that's not going to happen in my temple. And that's what the priest is thinking. Imagine if you're the priest and you hear a simple carpenter, unremarkable guy saying this, Come on, there's, there's no other way this could have gone. 
don't think that you would have been one of the people that stuck with Jesus because nobody stuck with Jesus. This was too much. He hasn't been resurrected yet. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth that does some miracles and some healings, but he just said he was God. That's going too far. Are you a prophet, Lonnie Frisbee? Yes, I am. You're out of here. You've gone too far. You just stepped over a line there, buddy. And like for anybody that cares about God at all, what Jesus just did here was blasphemy with any eyes of the flesh. The only way you think he's God is through the spirit. And Jesus has already taught that to his disciples. You say I'm the Christ and the only thing that taught you that was the Holy Spirit. And they still ran away. Verse 63, the priest, and again, I'm not here to defend the priest. He's an evil cat, but he's doing exactly what you would expect the high priest to do here. There's nothing out of the ordinary. He, the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? Let's give up on these witnesses. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving death. Don't think he would have been outside that crowd. You all condemned him. And then some began to spit on him and blindfolded him. And they beat him, and they say to him, prophesy. That's mockery. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. It's interesting because they spit on him, blindfolded him, and beat him. The beat him is to hit him with the fist. And the soldiers, it says, struck him with the palms of her hand. That's a slap. The fist would have hurt worse. So the Roman guards are actually showing more restraint than the things that came before. Usually they escalate when they give those lists. Here they're not doing that. By the way, I'll go back to getting blindsided. Is it worse to get smacked in the face or is it worse to be blindfolded when you can't see it coming and then you get smacked in the face and none of your natural reactions will respond to that? You just take the full force of the blow with no cringing, no muscle set up, nothing. Isaiah 53, go back there, look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Have we done anything where we deserve a slap in the face? Have we done something where we deserve to get just, like the just thing would be to take a punch? Have we done things where we deserve these blows? We often think of Jesus taking the sins of the world as this spiritual esoteric thing. He actually got hit and he didn't deserve to get hit. And he took that hit because he kept his mouth shut and said he was our king. He literally took these things. Every spit that was spat upon him, he didn't deserve any of it. I did. That's the worst. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. It's all been predicted. All of it was coming. Every single one of these The only innocent person here is Jesus himself. Everything he said was horrible unless it's true. Unless he's actually God, every bit of this is absolutely like just and right. But the fact that it's true makes it all unjust and wrong. And he's doing it on our behalf because he came here on our behalf. Mark's point here, he's unjustly beaten, he's disrespected, he's despised by the leaders. Mark doesn't reference all the Old Testament stuff. That's just for our sugar coating. But for even a Gentile, there's something wrong with this picture. They mock him with the prophecy comment. They strike him. The temple guard were not friendly people. They wanted people to not do something again. And in this point, they're taking him to the death. These are the same thugs that Peter was warming at the fire by. 
So he's hanging out with the people that are doing the most violence to Jesus. They do this out of cruelty. There is no reason for the, him to be stricken. He's been, he's been taken for, he's going to be sent to the Roman court. All they had to do is transport him. So all of this is done out of anger and bitterness because just like the high priest, by the way, tearing his robes, of all, tearing your robes was a sign of grief and agony, but it's very clear, and I should have gotten the reference, the high priest is the only person on earth who should never tear his robes. And so in the tearing of robes, he just disqualified himself for the high priesthood because they're not his robes. They're representative of the nation of Israel, and they're never to be torn or ripped, even in grief and agony. So when he rips his, his robes there, it's an, it, uh, you can go back to where we covered that, I think, in Leviticus. Um, shouldn't have ripped his robes. Humankind, let's face it, is pretty cruel and, and rotten to the core. And I think this is one of the honest things that, that Christianity gets right that other religions miss. A lot of religions think there's some sort of great, beautiful, wonderful thing at the core of humanity. And, and then there's not. <laughs> if you look deeply, there's not goodness coming out of you. There's selfishness coming out of you. And that core truth is one of the things that drew me to the faith. Humankind is not good at its core. It does this kind of thing at its core. Jesus did everything right, and he still gets treated like this. He's completely innocent, yet this is the end result of his three-year ministry. Here's four reactions. One reaction is horror. You just read this, and it's horrifying. In fact, you like to skip it. It's brutal, and whenever you get to this point in the Gospels, you just skip it and go past it. You don't want to look at it. You don't want to see it because it is evil, and that's a good reaction. This is, that's what we read this. We're supposed to read that the Isaiah 53 verse six, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's hard to look at punishment, especially when we know we deserve some degree of that ourselves. Second way to look at this is to have a deep regard and respect for the, the incarnated humanity of Jesus. This would not be easy to take. And there's a certain like respect Again, I'll go back to, you know, being kids and just seeing what a punch felt like when we did that after school, just as a group of dumb kids, you had a deep respect for guys that could take a punch, you know, oh, it was nothing. And you kind of fake like it didn't hurt. Well, this would have hurt. And one reaction to it is to be like, Jesus took this. He knew it was coming and he still did it. And he stood in there and took it. And there's a level of, you know, one reaction is horror. Another reaction is praise. Respect for Jesus. Like, this isn't easy for any guy to handle, especially this unremarkable guy. Um, what the world can imagine to do to him, they've actually, they're actually doing to him. And it makes you wonder, I think that idea of respect and praise, is there anything too marvelous for our God? Job 5.9, he does great things, too marvelous to understand. And, and the, any, is there anything too hard or too marvelous for the Lord? Genesis 18, 14. Is there anything too amazing that God wouldn't do for us? Is there any blow he wouldn't take on our behalf? Is there any spit he wouldn't accept for us? Is there anything he wouldn't do for us? We can look to history and just praise the God that would do anything for us. And you think of these verses like he, they spin on him, they blindfolded him, they beat him. They said, prophesy. The officers struck him with the palms of their hands. What Mark's trying to do there is, I think, regard this man. Look at what he did. Here's a third reaction. And I think this is a good one too. When we see our Jesus doing this, we, we get hearts of resolution and acceptance. And I think 
God puts this in some of our hearts because maybe some of us are called to things like this. Throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been hundreds of Christians killed for their faith. So when we see that God did this for us, maybe this might happen to one of us. I pray we don't. I pray we're in a nice pocket <laughs> and we get saved from some of these things. But frankly, a lot of there, there are people that read these passages and they claim to follow God, but then they're not willing to take anything for God. They won't even take people not thinking they're cool. <laughs> you think how weak that is. He was spat on for us, but we won't even get a sideways look on his behalf. And I'm not saying go out and annoy people. They will come to you if you live out your faith in joy. That You'll find these folks. Jesus suffers disrespect. Only I think today in the Christian church and, and the idea of martyrs over the last 2,000 years, what's changed is that after the resurrection, Jesus doesn't stand alone in that disrespect. We have a chance, if we're resolved, to step into that mockery that's going towards Jesus and say, why don't you give some of that to me because I represent him on this earth. If you want to mock Jesus, you're mocking me. And this is the difference, I think. At his, at his crucifixion, nobody stood with him. He stood alone. He didn't need us to do crucifixion. But today he doesn't stand alone. We stand right there with him. And that's the beauty. We get the Holy Spirit the disciples didn't have right now. It, it didn't shed on the church until the Pentecost. But we have an opportunity to be there too. When Peter was going to be crucified, they said, "Can you, he begged to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he deserved the same punishment that Jesus got. Please do it me a little bit different because my God is so much greater than me. The respect, the resolution, the honor. He wasn't trying to avoid punishment. He's stepping into it. 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred. They went to their death with this stuff. Exodus 18, 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before, before God for the people so that you might bring the difficulties to God. Here's the other thing. If Jesus did this for us, we can do this for other people. If I have a chance to take some of the hardness of this ugly life from somebody else and put it on my shoulders, amen to that. God's blessed me. How can I bless other people? That's the resolution. This is the strength of the church. And I know I'm going off on this. <laughs> Here's a fourth one. Another reaction to the punishment of Jesus. We can look at it with horror. We can look at it and be proud of the, just this burly guy that took this for us. We can stand in for him. But here's the fourth one. We can have confidence in our salvation. Some Christians, early Christians, they doubt their salvation. Am I really saved? God's not a patsy. At least the God I worship, he's not a chump. He's not an idiot. He doesn't do things because he's dumb. He, and Jesus wouldn't have endured this punishment if there wasn't a reason for it. Jesus is an almighty God. He blew, blowed the soldiers over in the garden with a word we see in other gospels. He had the power to avoid this. Nobody can take Jesus' life. And he doesn't have to take this garbage from humanity. He's doing it because there's a purpose to it. And we can read, you stack up the abuse on Jesus, and all it should do is stack up your confidence that salvation's the real thing. So Romans 8.31, what shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus has a personal experience with evil, and at this point, he's now got reason to have a beef with evil, right? Evil's given its worse, and when we stand before the throne of judgment and evil tries to lay claim on our life, Jesus is like, ah, 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 I took that, 
And I didn't take it for nothing. I took it for you and you and you and me. I love that Jesus did that. He sent his son for us and it wasn't for some accidental, incidental reason. He came to take this punishment for us literally and figuratively and spiritually all the way around. So 1 John 4, 1, in this love, not that we loved God, he didn't need us for this, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. No matter how bad this looks, take heart, believers, because he did this for you. No matter how cruel this looks, take heart because it's nothing compared to what we have opportunity. I mean, we can't even imagine or begin to do to God what has been done to him already. There is no sin beyond his forgiveness because he forgave this. Did it right at the cross. We'll get there. If we've repented from sin, like if you're still embracing sin, like (laughs) I would watch out for God's attitude towards sinners at the judgment seat. But if you've given up on sin and said, I want to walk away from that stuff. I don't want that crap in my life anymore. I want to live holy because God loved me. You got total salvation protection. Have assurance in that. You are covered. And God's going to bring those people to himself. But people that want to embrace this kind of nonsense and what leads to it, he's not washing those people clean. His blood was shed for those that follow him. You accept that gift, you're in. Have assurance of salvation. I'll go back to our chapter. Sorry, I went off on that a little bit. But it's, it's tough. It's tough to read these things. Verse 66. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, the word for servant girls there is like little teeny girl. <laughs> like this is the, 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 the lowest of the maid servant girls in the, the, of all the women servants in the temple area. This was the one that got the worst jobs. It was that girl, the little girl, the servant girl of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying neither I neither know nor understand what you are saying. That's a legal response, like he's on trial. He's actually responding to a little girl when Jesus wouldn't respond to a high priest. But he's giving the legal response. And he went out the, the, on the porch and a rooster crowed. That should have been his warning. You're well on your way to prophecy getting fulfilled. The servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, hey, this is one of them. But he denied it a second time, he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean. Now, if he would have just shut up like Jesus, they wouldn't have heard his accent. But he, he talked and they could hear his accent. You're a Galilean. Your speech shows it. And then he began to curse and swear. I don't know this man of whom you speak. Mark kindly leaves the swearing out, which is part of why we try to avoid keep our language clean because we see that modeled. The second time the roosters crowed, then Jesus called to mind the word that Jesus had said, of, said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. It, it's hard to read these chapters without feeling that kind of emotion. Mark flashes back to when Jesus said this was going to happen. It happens. God knew it was going to happen. He predicted it was going to happen. The fulfillment of prophecy in Mark validates all the prophecies of chapter 13. Because if a prophet predicts things like this and they happen exactly, then you keep a record in the temples. So the Christians started to keep a record of all of Jesus's prophecy because they came true. I neither know nor understand. It's just, honestly, it's it's a weird phrase, but it was kind of a Jewish legal phrase saying I'm innocent. 
The rooster crowing tells us that the sun is rising. Roosters crow just before the sun comes up, so it gives us a time of day. Um, the rooster crowing twice, we don't know the exact amount of time between those, of course, um, but it's enough time for this little girl to walk up and go, hey, you're one of the Galilee people. And he had hidden quietly amongst the sinners, even the sinners that hauled Jesus away and warmed himself by the fire by not proclaiming Christ. And honestly, this is such a human addition to this narrative that his embarrassment to stand with Christ is a failing that Peter will never do again. This sticks in his head. It says it called to mind. Um, and that's the point of all of this. All of this is going to change Peter's life. When we fail Jesus, we have something to go to Jesus and say, I'm sorry for. And, and it creates a relationship. At verse 71, the cursing and the swearing. Um, this is a cool addition, I think. Jesus' followers were known by their words. And part of the way Jesus tries to deny Christ is he starts to speak like the temple guard. And it's the coarseness of speech that he's trying to affiliate himself with those evil people. And, but it does tell us something that if surely if he's cursing and swearing a bunch, he's surely not representing a holy God. And so you've got this thing where, you know, for some people, it's a real conviction. I try to not get too worked up about this because I grew up swearing a lot. It took me years to get it out of my habit of speech. But if you would like to be regarded and respected in certain circles, you need to clean that stuff out. Some of you don't like that I use crude language when I teach, but, you know, you're here. So you're in, you're part of the problem. Um but there's just this idea, I think, that, that Peter's speech, he was a fisherman. He knew how to swear like a sailor, right? <laughs> this, this is the, his world, and he grew up in this world. So the idea that he has kind of been refining that while he's been with Jesus, I think that's beautiful. And you know what? Jesus does refine our language. And we do start to speak things that are good and noble and holy and true, and that what comes out of our mouth is a blessing to others. And a lot of swearing is for me to try to connect with you on a base level. Like, we're buddies. We swear together. And that is part of the environment of swearing and the culture of swearing. So to not participate in that with people but still be loving and friendly, it does separate you. People do notice you don't talk like I talk. So as believers, we may know how to swear, but as we represent Jesus, there's going to be a point in our lives where God kind of slowly works that out of our life. Um, and again, people, there's nowhere in the Bible that says don't swear. And well, I, I don't know. It does say that your words should be pure. It does say that you're representing a holy God. So does a holy God talk like that? Or better yet, like, you know, it used to be able to say, like, if your mom heard you talk like that. But these days you can't even say that. It's like, you should hear my mom. She swears like a sailor. So he thought about it. I, I like the idea of the mental engagement that's going on here. It's not just that Peter's responding emotionally. It calls to mind, and then notice it says he thought about it. Part of a movement towards the kingdom isn't an emotional reaction to the kingdom. And it's part of why we talk about emotion. There's great elevated feelings. Like when you're singing a worship song, it lifts you sometimes, and you just feel like you're on a mountaintop with that. But getting right with Jesus requires some thought. Who are you? What have you done? And what Peter's thinking about here is, Jesus called it. He called everything about me. He knows me to my core. He knows me better than I do. And everything that I tried to do, because I think Peter was convinced he was going to stand by Jesus through this. But now it's over. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and he didn't do it. 
and he failed to pray. He failed to stand with Jesus. He failed everything. And he's never going to fail like that again. And, but he had to think about it. Think about this, Peter. You thought with all your heart and soul you were going to serve the Lord, and then you tried with all your heart and soul, and you miserably failed so bad a little girl beat you up. <laughs> the, all your strength and power does nothing in the kingdom of God. Nothing. The only thing you have to offer God is your humility and your service and a heart that is tender and loving to the kingdom of God. And some of us have soft, you know, prime rib kind of hearts. Some of us need a big hammer of a tenderizer to pound us into softness. And I'm one of those people, and so is Peter. But boy, when you do that tenderizing work, mm, this is sweet and savory to God when someone who was hard becomes soft to the things of God. We fail in our strengths Solomon was the wisest in the world. Ecclesiastes, he fell to folly. David was strong and loyal. He fell to cowardice and betrayal. He, Peter is the rock of our, of our church. He falls to a wee lass. Judas and Peter both failed Jesus. All of them do, but one recovers and one doesn't. Which are you? Have you failed Jesus yet in a notable way where you can think in your head, I know when I've failed Jesus. Great, you're ready to move on. If you still think you're perfect, we got some tenderizing to do. And Tom's got a hammer, right? We will work that out. He thought about it and he wept. Conviction is hard, but at the realization of it, and you go, yeah, I've really screwed this up. What comes out of that is this beautiful, humble heart. What comes out of softened ground are flowers and food. And that's how God works. He truly loves Jesus. And that's the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter actually loves Jesus. He loves what he's done for him. He loves the beauty of it. And the sin of Judas distances him in failure. But the sin of Peter draws him closer with a broken heart. And we have to see that. So I have to ask, have I failed Jesus? Have I denied him either in obedience or passivity? Right? Have I failed him in not doing the things I should? Or have I failed him in just disobeying the law of God? And have I missed the boat? And have I missed the mark at any point? And when I think about it, I think we all have to admit, yeah, we're screw-ups. And if you haven't realized that, get ready for some hard times. Because if you love the Lord, God will bring out the tenderizing hammer. Some people get saved, they think their life's going to be perfect. And it's like, well, I, I've seen the hammer in my life, so get ready because you got some things God's going to work out in your life because he's called you and he wants to put you to work. So there's some things that have to happen. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you think you're the exception, get ready for some tenderizing. But if you love the Lord, let's do the tenderizing. No big deal. Praise God. We can weep, but we can be restored. Judas weeps and he's not restored because he never repents. For Christ's sake, it almost sounds like swearing. For Christ's sake, he was working with 100% failures to build his church, and he still is. So it's like, I came here to hang out with y'all today because I wanted to hang out with some sinners, right? But we're sinners saved by grace. We're a little bit different than sinners lost in sin and blind. Every Bible character in the Bible has failed in some way, shape, or form. And the bigger the hero, the bigger the failures. So you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm a really big failure. Great, that's a good place to start. Don't forget that ever. 
as you start moving in the kingdom and God starts to use you, please don't forget that you were a failure when you started that journey. Never let go of that. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. For God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame, to shame the things that are mighty. Do you know and love Jesus? Does it break your heart that he took abuse for you? That you could have stood there with him on? Do you want to be a good person? Then do what he asks to do. Start over, repent, renew your love of Christ and do it today. And don't skip on that little note. So we get to the end and we get we leave Peter weeping, but I don't want to leave on that note. I want to leave on this note. I was at this point at one point in my life. I just realized everything I tried and every, everything I could do, I just knew in my heart it wasn't pleasing to God at all. And I realized if I keep going on this path, I'm going to be an absolute failure in my life. I'm not going to win at anything. And in that God was, it's like God says, oh, there's the Sean I made. The one that realizes I'm his power, I'm his strength. The joy of the Lord is his strength. And instead of being an angry, bitter punk, I think I'm a fairly joyful guy these days. But I still remember that 16-year-old punk. I still remember that bitter kid that lost his mom and watched his dad drinking in the afternoons and watched his sister running off to do who knows what with her boyfriends. Right? I was just a bitter, angry kid. And then the Lord came into my life and brought godly men into my life all the way along that just kept planting seeds and kept tenderizing that heart until I made my first decent decision, which was to marry a godly young lady, right? And, it, and you just, and then, and then God blesses that and you make another good decision and God just starts changing and transforming your life. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. You guys all think I'm, I'm not that smart, but I will work as hard as anybody to serve my king. I'm, it's hard to outwork a godly person, right? And, and, and in all the intelligence, all the strength of physical strength, all the charisma that any person could have in the eyes of God, they're just not what God needs. God just needs tender hearts. So Jesus takes the abuse. G Peter weeps on the other end. But what we have is the seed of a heart that's about to build the church of Christ with God's strength and support. Peter's going to be the rock that Jesus called him. But he's got some work to do, and we'll get to it next week. Amen? Dear Lord, I feel like I've already been praying. Uh, you hear every word we're saying. You're with us when we gather, and your word speaks through the scriptures, but it also speaks right to our hearts. Lord, you know every thought before we've even had it. You know every decision before we've made it. And Lord, some of us still think we're in control of all that. But Lord, we don't. We know that you're in control, and you're on your throne, and in that we have the deep horror of what you took on our behalf, the deep respect for who you are to do that for us. But Lord, we also have great assurance that you will not squander that opportunity of salvation because you paid a price and you're going to collect all of your children and we just want to be in that boat. Lord, may our actions not be ones that impress ourselves or others, but may we do everything for the audience of one. We want you to see what we're doing. And may, may our worship, may our praise, may our fellowship, and may our food be an act of worship to you because you've called us together as a body. And every person here, Lord, you've called us here for a reason. Every person listening to this recording, you're listening to it because God put you here at this moment. And Lord, we want to follow you. So we give our lives to you. We offer them up to you use us so that we can joyfully come back next week and share what's going on with everybody else. 
may your spirit move across this fellowship, but across our city, our state, and our country. Lord, we want to see the Holy Spirit just awaken and move, and all of the plans and plots of this world amount to just silliness compared to the power of the Holy Spirit. There's one way, one truth, and one Christ. So Lord, we just appreciate that you are, and Jesus said, I am. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.